In the pantheon of American conspiracy theories, the 1963 assassination of John F. Kennedy is the gift that keeps on giving. For nearly 60 years, it's been dissected and debated by partisans of countless conspiracy theories that the mob did it, the Cubans did it, the Russians did it, the CIA did it, the Pentagon did it, Nixon did it, LBJ himself did it. Anybody but Lee Harvey Oswald, the disaffected, self-proclaimed Marxist and former Soviet defector who just happened to be perched with a rifle on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository and who the endlessly maligned Warren Commission concluded long ago was the lone gunman. In recent years, nothing has fueled the JFK conspiracy world more than the CIA's refusal to release all of its documents about the assassination, despite a 1992 law enacted by Congress that called on the U.S. government to release everything. This week, we got one more long-delayed release by the CIA, 13,173 documents that the agency says amounts to, quote, all of its information known to be directly related to the assassination. But true to form, it wasn't everything. If you read the fine print from the CIA, there are still docs being withheld relating to, quote, specific tradecraft and intelligence methods still in use, specific operational detail and intelligence sources and methods, and, end quote, perhaps most intriguingly, quote, still classified covert action programs still in effect. So what does the newly released material show? And what are they still keeping secret? We'll talk to two leading experts on the subject, former New York Times reporter Phil Sheenan and former Washington Post reporter Jeff Morley, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And Victoria Bassetti is off uh, today doing legal business. She is a lawyer um, with uh, lots of um, real work to do. But look, JFK assassination, we couldn't pass on this one. Um, I'm somebody who grew up on the JFK assassination, obsessed over it for years, read countless books. I love delving into the sort of, you know, weeds and uh, rabbit holes that the JFK K murder has given us. At the end of the day, I gotta say, the evidence seems overwhelming to me that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone gunman and there were no co-conspirators. But at least one of our guests uh, thinks differently and he's probably even more obsessed than me. I'm talking about Jeff Morley. Phil Sheenan, who we'll have, has a somewhat different perspective. But, you know, a couple things just worth to Starting out to point out, we've talked so much in recent years about conspiracy theories. And in our recent conversations, they are conspiracy theories of the fringe right wing and, you know, used by Donald Trump, Deep State, you know, Steve Bannon, all of that. But the term conspiracy theory, and we've talked about this before, really grows out of the Kennedy assassination. It was not a thing. It was not a part of the American political dialogue until 1964. And all of those initial references were about 
the Kennedy assassination. So in the conspiracy world, this is the crime. This is the event that gave rise to conspiracy theories as a part of yeah. the American well, look, political so, dialogue. So I think um, to set up this fascinating conversation that I know we're going to have with Sheenan and Morley, I think we should do just a little bit of a primer on this mother sure. of all cons- mother of all conspiracy <laughs> theories. But yeah. l- let me start by asking this because you you are you are the resident expert on conspiracy theories. You obviously uh, host. Uh, the offshoot uh, podcast Conspiracy Land, which uh, delves has delved into many of the more more recent uh, conspiracy theories. Where do you situate the Kennedy assassination on the spectrum of, you know, sort of one end crazy like the sort of QAnon type conspiracy theories that we hear about now, right. and on the other end of the spectrum, just a, a legitimate investigation that is trying to answers some unsolved and really important questions and mysteries? Good question. And, you know, the fact is that both of those things are true. Look, the reason, one reason that the Kennedy assassination got so much traction as a conspiracy theory and was taken so seriously as it has been over the years is that Yeah, there were cover-ups that went on, cover-ups of the nasty business that the CIA was involved in during the height of the Cold War, its attempts to assassinate Fidel Castro through all sorts of exotic methods, using all sorts of unsavory characters, mobsters, and, and whatnot. And that was information that was withheld from the Warren Commission that was investigating the murder, but was clearly highly relevant to understanding the full landscape of when this happened. There was lots of things that the CIA was doing, Operation Mongoose, which we're going to talk about in a moment, to topple Castro's government, authorized by Kennedy himself. And then there was also the sort of bureaucratic embarrassment that this guy, Oswald, who was a Marxist who had defected to the Soviet Union and came back to the United States, was living in Dallas, that the FBI and the CIA both knew stuff about him. And they were both reluctant to share how much they knew because of the sort of bureaucratic fear that they might be blamed for not having stopped this monstrous crime uh, before it went into effect. All of that is true. But none of that gets you to what a lot of conspiracy theorists want to believe, which is that there was some sort of plot within the U.S. government, the deep state or whatever, to assassinate the president of the United States. So on the one hand, totally legitimate to look at the ways that the CIA and the FBI withheld information, covered stuff up to avoid political embarrassment and perhaps more. But on the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, yeah, you get into all sorts of crazy QAnon shit about the Kennedy assassination, crossfire, the mobs, uh, you know, the endless array of wild conspiracy theories, most sort of dramatically seen and graphically seen in Oliver Stone's JFK, which really is the reason we have the JFK law that requires the disclosure of these documents. That was just a 
totally bonkers movie that made a hero out of this crazy prosecutor Jim Garrison Jim Garrison yeah. uh, in New Orleans who who put up this you know pathetically ridiculous case implicating some guy uh, Shaw uh, in New Orleans in the assassination which made no sense and strung together all sorts of crazy stuff that didn't connect that is in my view indistinguishable from QAnon crazy conspiracy. So let's break shit. down the basic crux of this conspiracy right. theory. And let's want you also explain why it still persists among not just tinfoil crackpots, but serious uh, journalists yeah. uh, like Jeff Morley, who we're about to interview right. uh, on the show. So a lot of people have heard about the lone gunmen yeah. or the theory. Uh, so Talk about that. Yeah. I mean, first of all, there's sort of basic facts, right, that, you know, came out in the day, in hours, days, weeks after the assassination. Lee Harvey Oswald was a Marxist who'd been active in the Fair Play for Cuba committee to try to change U.S. policy to support Fidel Castro at the time the U.S. government was trying to overthrow him. He had gone to Mexico City to try to get a visa to return to the Soviet Union. He had lived there. He had defected there, returned, then wanted to go back. Um, he has all sorts of intriguing contacts with a woman uh, at the Cuban consulate, who Phil Sheenan is going to talk about in a moment. You're going to hear all sorts of wild shit about twist parties and sexual relationships, all that juicy stuff, which we'll get to in this pod. But look, at the end of the day, we know he was a dis affected loner. We know he was working at the Texas School Book Depository building. We know that he bought the Manilker Carcano uh, Italian-made rifle using an alias earlier in 1963. That same rifle, which fired the bullets that killed Kennedy, was found on the sixth floor of the Texas Book depository where uh, where Oswald was working and that Oswald after the assassination fled the scene then shot officer Tippett in Dallas and gets arrested by the Dallas police and then wants a uh, Marxist lawyer in New York who he tries to call to represent him none of that fits with the idea that he was some sort of CIA asset or decoy to try to uh, throw people off a much bigger plot by the US government to assassinate the president Right. I know everything I've just said is going to be disputed by conspiracy obsessives. You know, well, he didn't really shoot Tippett. Oh, it wasn't really his gun. I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, like, but, but, you know, multiple investigations have established that these are the, the core basic facts of the assassination. One thing I've, right? I've never really understood is why has the only argument about a conspiracy to kill Kennedy involved, you know, sort of the deep state and the CIA and the U and and parts of the U.S. government in itself. I mean, why wouldn't the Cubans or, or the Soviets right. have had a motive to kill yeah. uh, Kennedy? Right. Well, certainly they did have a motive, or Castro had a motive because he knew about the CIA's plots to assassinate him. He was aware of that and sort of made vague references to, you know, some sort of reckoning that would be coming because of what the CIA was doing to try to topple him. So if you're looking for motive, you know, Castro leaps out 
more than anybody in the CIA or the Pentagon or the U.S. government it, itself. That doesn't mean Castro did it, because at the end of the day, there isn't really any evidence to back that up. The most plausible conspiracy light version of this, I remember, is a member of the uh, a Warren Commission, David Bellin, I believe it was, wrote a book suggesting that the Mexico City trip is the one part of this they the Warren Commission never felt they got all their arms around and that he speculated he pointed out that when Kat, when Oswald was arrested on November 22nd by the Dallas police he had just enough money in his pocket to get a bus ticket to go to Laredo the border with Mexico and that he said he said this could be a sign that Oswald had gotten some kind of vague green light that if he could make it to Mexico, somebody would take care of him and he could flee from there. And that, you know, could conceivably point to the Cubans or the or the Russians. Again, that seems like no a hard evidence read. of this. It's yeah. a thin read, but it's a it's more of a read than some of the wild shit that you'd hear from the folks on the left who want to blame the CIA, who want to blame the FBI, who want to believe that there was some kind of monstrous plot by high level officials to assassinate the president of the United States. So what are the main reasons that these conspiracy theories persist? Well, I think it's what I said before, which is all the stuff that was withheld by the CIA and the FBI, the failure to release everything. And, you know, if anything, these staggered releases over the years by the CIA in which they release some stuff, but not all stuff. They keep stuff redacted. They, I mean, even with this new batch of documents, many of them have been released before. We just got, you know, additional paragraphs of, of stuff that have been redacted before. One we're going to talk about, which is to me sort of indicative of all this, is the memo that the CIA wrote after the assassination about the phone calls that they had intercepted that Oswald had made to the Soviet embassy in Mexico City during his trip there and the Cuban consulate in Mexico City as well. One of the things we learned as a result of this recent batch, not that Oswald had any more substantive involvement or connections there than we knew before, but that the CIA had intercepted that phone call because they had some secret tapping, phone tapping center that it operated with the president of Mexico. That's new, right? That's new. The CIA was, and, and this was so secret, and Phil Sheenan's going to talk about this, that even Mexican police and intelligence agencies didn't even know about it. It was a separate side, highly sensitive operation between the CIA and the office of the president of Mexico. So that kind of gives you an idea of why the CIA over these years was reluctant to release some of this stuff. But once you learn about those things, it cuts against the the basic conspiracy theory because you, you, you then begin to see the motive right. for why the US government uh, withheld this information. The problem is, you know, now, as we understand it, most of the documents have been released, but there's still something like, you know, 5% that haven't been. 
Yeah, I, I love the line in the CIA's letter to the White House that just got released this week about still ongoing <laughs> covert operations that they can't disclose. The idea that there's been a CIA covert op going back to the 60s that is still in existence, <laughs> that yeah. is still going on. Yeah. I'm sure uh, people in uh, Havana will take uh, uh, due note of, of that. <laughs> and we should point out that there was, as I think I said before, a lot of nasty shit that was going on, right? That Operation Mongoose, which was a secret CIA op to topple Castro's government using all sorts of unsavory methods, including assassination. Including my favorite, which which was uh, to go in there with, you know, some covert op to actually cut off Castro's beard, which was yeah. uh, regarded as like, like Samson, the source of his, his power. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the in a lot of ways, these conspiracy theories have persisted because of the lack of transparency, because of the crazy plots that were being hatched around the time. And, uh, you know, it feeds into all of this distrust. And um, I don't really see that uh, how that how that ever changes. It seems like we'll be we'll be yeah. um, debating this forever. And look, I mean, the concept of the deep state, you know, from the Kennedy assassination and, you know, all the related activities of the CIA through to Watergate, you know, uh, all that sort of coalesced on the left. But it's worth pointing out that it's now been eagerly adopted by the right wing. And uh, as you'll hear in the conversation we're about to have, Tucker Carlson was on last night saying, you know, you see, we've got new re Reason to believe the CIA was behind the assassination because people on the right now want to associate the CIA with the deep state and all sorts of secret plots to overthrow governments. They tried to assassinate uh, Kennedy. And of course, from Tucker Carlson's perspective, they then tried to sabotage. Donald it's that Trump's old thing presidency. about about, you know, how the more ideological you are, if you're super right wing, you go as far as you can and you meet the left it's at a certain point and right. vice versa. <laughs> right. And the Kennedy assassination is the event that does that. Anyway, uh, look, we could go on, but we've got like two great guests who know a lot more <laughs> about this than you or I. They have, as I mentioned before, different perspectives. So um, let's get to it. All right, we've now got with us two leading experts on the Kennedy assassination, Phil Sheenan, the former New York Times reporter and author of A Cruel and Shocking Act, The Secret History of the Kennedy Assassination, and Jeff Morley, formerly of the Washington Post, author of multiple books that relate to various aspects of the Kennedy assassination, most recently, Scorpion's Dance. Jeff, welcome back to Skullduggery. And Phil, welcome for the first time. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks. So lots to talk about here. Uh, Phil, let's start with you. I assume you've been um, pouring through the uh, docs released yesterday. What struck you? What leaps out, if anything? Uh, what struck me is how many of these documents I've seen before. You know, what we got yesterday were documents, by and large, we have seen before, just in redacted form. 
And by and large, I mean, it, I think it's pretty clear there are no bombshells in here. There's one really interesting document about Oswald's trip to Mexico. But other than that, I think people are going to get very frustrated going through this, especially since a lot of what was what is now available are just our names and code words and addresses that aren't going to mean much, even the people who study this subject. Let's talk about that Mexico City document, because it did. Yeah. Um, I, I found it fascinating. I don't know how much of it had been out there before. But one thing that just immediately leapt out at me was it gave some insight into why some of this material has been withheld over all these years, and that was that the CIA learned about Oswald's trip to Mexico City in late September, early October 1963, just what, like uh, seven weeks before the assassination itself, in which he's trying to get a visa to go to Cuba so he can go back to Russia. And the CIA learns about this because they had a listening center that they were tapping phones with in the office or in coordination with the president of Mexico, which kind of gives you some idea of, you know, the sensitivity of why they might not want to have released that info before. But you brought it up. So tell us what struck you about that particular document. Well, I mean, as you may know, this whole incident in Mexico, Oswald's six-day trip to Mexico, is, is to me the great unsolved mystery of the Kennedy assassination. Why did this guy go to Mexico just several weeks before the assassination? And, you know, we know from the previous documents that while he's there, he's meeting with Cuban spies and Russian spies, including a KGB assassinations expert. And we also know from the previously declassified documents that uh, the CIA is conducting surveillance of Oswald while he's there tapping his telephone calls. Uh, they may have taken his picture at some point. And we knew about the tap telephone calls previously, but what we learned yesterday because of redactions that were lifted in a CIA document, we know that Oswald's phone calls were being tapped by a special operation between the CIA and the president of Mexico, so secret that apparently Mexican police and, and spy agencies knew nothing about it. This was sort of the president's personal wiretapping operation in conjunction with the CIA. And I, I think the CIA has withheld that information all these years because they didn't want to screw up their relationship with the Mexican spy agencies. And I assume in the last several weeks, there have been sensitive conversations between the CIA and their counterparts in Mexico over the fact that the this secret Mexican ta uh, wiretapping operation is going to be exposed to the world with these new documents. I just want to follow up with Phil very quickly, and then we'll bring uh, Jeff right in, because I think your contention is that that Oswald's trip to Mexico City really hasn't has not gotten adequate investigation, and and in fact, Dean Rusk in the wake of the assassination just shut it down. Why do you think that's the case? And, and why did, did Rusk intervene to shut down any investigation of what was what had happened there? Well, the, the business with Rusk, I'm not sure I can explain it, but the whole business in Mexico City, it just undermines the idea of Oswald as this lone wolf who never could have been stopped. You know, what we have learned as a result of the release of all these documents since the 1990s is that Oswald was on the radar screen of both the FBI and the CIA for weeks, months, years before the assassination. They knew a lot about this guy. And it appears that while Oswald is in Mexico, he is talking openly about killing the president. 
And you have to wonder what the CIA learned in Mexico City during Oswald's travels in September and October that they failed to pass along to Washington, including the fact that this you know, former Marine who'd once tried to defect to the Soviet Union, a self-declared Marxist, is talking about killing the president. And you would no, think no, wait a second, Phil. Phil, can I yep. break in? I I read the document. I don't see any reference to him talking about killing the president in oh, this document. I'm I'm feel I'm feel like I'm just telling more of the story here. Okay. No, uh, in fact, <laughs> that that wasn't revealed until this document. I think is in 1963. It was written right. in 1963 or early 1964. And right. uh, no, no, no. This is something we've learned later. And I think the guy who wrote that memo in 1963 didn't know anything about Os what Oswald had said. No, yeah. So anyway, so the. the Everything that goes on in Mexico sort of undermines the idea that Oswald is this lone wolf who never could have been stopped. What we now know is that, and again, not just from this document, but from everything else we've seen, is that both the CIA and FBI had Oswald under pretty close surveillance in the weeks before the assassination. And if they had just acted on the information in their own files, they would have known to round him up before John Kennedy arrived in Dallas. So, Jeff, let's uh, bring you in on this. Uh, first of all, starting with the point about uh, the secret telephone tapping right. and coordination with the president of Mexico, you've made a lot over the years about the material that the CIA has been withholding, suggesting right. that there's sensitive, embarrassing information that explains it. But doesn't this kind of give some insight into why the CIA would have withheld, at least in this case, case portions of this document because it didn't want to expose this highly yeah, no, covert yeah, yeah. operation it had with the president of Mexico. Yeah. When Scott had forged a comfortable relationship with Adolfo Lopez Mateos and his successor, Gustavo Diaz Ordaz. And as a result of that, they set up a listening post in the DFS, the Mexican version of the FBI. They tapped about 30 phone lines when Scott provided the technology the Mexicans provided the personnel and they shared the take. And so and they were not only spying on communists, they were also spying on domestic opponents of the president. That was a little sweetener that Win Scott threw in for. By his the way, Win Scott was the, the CIA station chief. Yes, he was. The, okay. He was the top CIA's top man in, in Mexico and regarded as one of the best station chiefs in the world. So, yes, that that part of the story is very understandable why they would want to keep that kind of technical capacity and the relationship with the Mexican government out of public view. Judge Tonheim from the review board told me that when they first wanted to make this operation public in the 1990s, it was called Lee Envoy was the code name. The people that said, if we release this, the government of Mexico will fall because it was still a, a government of the PRI, the ruling party in Mexico for 80 years. Well, after 2000, the, the pre-government fell and was replaced. And Tonheim said, so that objection no longer has any merit. You know, the government that might fall because of the result of this disclosure doesn't exist anymore. So that was the kind of debate that went on when the question that came out. But, you know, the important point, I think, is what Phil said before, which is, you know, the idea that that the government foisted on the public the notion that this guy was a lone gunman and he just up and shot the president. And, you know, we're sorry, Mrs. Kennedy. I mean, that's just a cover story. It, it's very clear that C top senior CIA officials 
knew all about this guy. And as Phil says, it sits very uneasily with the notion that one man alone and unaided killed the president. If okay, not, so, oh, let's, so let's, let's hold on a second, Jeff. I got to jump in here. Let's just step back. But okay. I want I want us to step back for a second. And I want to hear from both of these excellent journalists and truth seekers what they think the bottom line is. Because there are a lot of reasons why the U.S. government might have wanted to keep all of this stuff from coming out that goes beyond, you know, whether they they were covering up a conspiracy. You talked about one with relationships with Mexico. There's obviously, you know, they may have been wanting to make sure that that Operation Mongoose didn't come out. There's also something between, you know, a conspiracy and, you know, it could be that Oswald talked about what he was going to do. The Russians may have or the Cubans may have known about it. That's not necessarily a conspiracy to assassinate the president. So I want to hear from you, your bottom line right now. Was there a conspiracy or was Oswald a lone operator? I think, I think Jeff, I know what your view of that is because you started to say it, but just tell us what you think briefly. And then Phil, you tell us what you think. I think the president was killed by enemies in his own government who had the ability to make it look like something else. And that's why the Mexico City visit is so important. And just to add one more point about, you know, why would Dean Russ shut down the investigation of what happened in Mexico City? Why did J. Edgar Hoover do the same thing? And here's why I think they did it. Because if you investigate Oswald's Cuban connections, they take you right into CIA operations. They don't take you into Cuban intelligence operations. The people, the intelligence agency that knew the most about Lee Harvey Oswald six weeks before the assassination was without a doubt the CIA. So I think that that information that was developed and held by the counterintelligence staff and kept secret from all subsequent investigations was key to the manipulation of Oswald. Now, how did that work? That's still shrouded in secrecy. And so I can't you know, explain the mechanics of, of a conspiracy if there was a conspiracy. So I just like to leave it at the president was killed by enemies in his own government who had the ability to make look look like something else. And we're still dealing with that obfuscation of making it look like something else. OK, Phil, your view? You know, I've always had trouble believing in anything like sort of an Oliver Stone-esque conspiracy. Um, you know, Oswald was a delusional misfit in many ways. And I found it hard to believe that any really reputable intelligence agency or police agency would have anything to do with this guy. And if they had something to do with him, why would they allow his wife and child to live in desperate poverty in Dallas, Texas. It's a, that none of that made any sense to me. I always thought that what is going on here, again, this is my speculation, is that the CIA and the FBI were horrified at the time of the assassination to realize how much they knew about this guy and how if they had just acted on the information in their own files, they could have stopped him. And after the assassination, they shut down any investigation in Mexico City because they knew it would point to their own bungling before the assassination. In many ways, I think the story is very similar to 9-11, which is a subject I wrote another book about, that the government knew a lot about this terrible thing that was about to happen and didn't prevent it out of incompetence or laziness or whatever. And I think that really is what's going on here. I think if there's a conspiracy, it involves other people who knew what Oswald was talking about doing, who may have encouraged him, it may have helped him. And I think that leads you back to Mexico City. 
which again helps explain why the CIA and the FBI were pretty determined not to get to the bottom of what happened in Mexico. Right. And I believe that, and this is in the um, the Mexico City document, that one of those who Oswald was in contact with at the Soviet embassy was a KGB assassin operative, correct? That was his reputation yes. in the yeah. station. I mean, right. So, yeah. I mean, and, and that's one reason some of us have felt, look, if there was anything that pointed to Oswald having contact with people who might have encouraged him in some way. It's more likely either the Cubans or the Russians he was in contact with in Mexico City than anybody in the U.S. government, because I'm not aware of, and please, Jeff, point me to, with all these thousands of pages of documents, including internal CIA memoranda, including contemporaneous documents about how they went rushing for the CIA file as soon as they learned it was Oswald. I'm not aware of anything that points to Oswald having any direct contacts with anybody in the CIA prior to the assassination. Am I wrong about that? I mean, he has lots of contact with CIA assets and CIA assets, not CIA officers, officers, agents, anybody who was employed by the CIA. Right. You know, what you see is in CIA files is you see the, the most sensitive topic is Oswald's contacts with Cubans in Mexico City. And in fact, in January 1964, Dick Helms and James Angleton write a memo to the Warren Commission, and they tell them a very clever and specific lie. They say, we didn't know that Oswald was in contact with the Cubans until after the assassination. Okay. That was a lie. Win Scott knew it was a lie, and he wrote that it was a lie in his memoir later. Why did Helms and Angleton lie about that? That's one question. Second question is, when Oswald's trip in Mexico City is reported to the station, to CIA headquarters, the question goes naturally to Angleton's people, the very top of the CIA. Remind us who Angleton is. James Angleton is the chief of counterintelligence, and so he's the senior officer in the U.S. government for detecting the penetration of the U.S. government has a very highly responsible job. His people have been monitoring Oswald for the past four years, which they will lie to the Warren Commission about that as well. And so when they write back and they like Phil says, they've got this big file on their desk. Oh, this guy defected to the Soviet Union. He came back with the Russian wife. He got arrested in New Orleans fighting with the CIA funded Cubans. Angleton's people don't mention any of that to win Scott because that was the operation that was going on. And Winscott had no need to know about it. So they keep that information out of the cable that goes back to Mexico City. And they say, Oswald's a fine fellow. He defected to the Soviet Union. And he came back and he's maturing. Six top CIA officials. What's the operation you're talking about? And what's the evidence or documentation that Oswald was in any way connected to such an operation? When Oswald went public as a pro-Castro supporter. He was a pro-Castro supporter. Let's not sort of gloss over the fact no, that no, this no, guy no, was no, a no, Marxist. No, Let's be very specific. On, on, on August 1st, 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald had zero public profile as a supporter of, public, of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee or Fidel Castro. 
But he, had, he was a Marxist who had defected to the life, Soviet Union, who in believed fervently life. in the communist cause. Correct. I mean, fervently, he was not a diehard Marxist. If you listen to the to the well, to the defecting community. to the Soviet Union is a and pretty good sign of one as is a diehard Marxist. Yes, he re, and he returned disillusioned, and he talked about that in his interviews in 1963. But here's the point, Mike. Yeah. On August 1st, 1963, he had no pro public profile as a supporter of Castro. 30 days later, thanks to a CIA program called AMSPEL, the Cuban Student Directorate, the CIA, the FBI, and the biggest TV and radio stations in New Orleans had audio, video, and newspaper clippings showing that the thoroughly obscure Lee Harvey Oswald was a supporter of Castro and the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. So that all of that public profile of Oswald as a Castro as a public Castro supporter is made possible by a CIA propaganda operation called Amspell. And on within hours of Kennedy's assassination, those Amspell assets go to the media and say, look, the president was killed by a communist. That wasn't an accident. That was the result of CIA, somebody at the But it begs the, the question, are, are you suggesting that Lee Harvey Oswald was play acting when he was no, no, distributing he was, he was leaflets serious. in support of Fidel Castro in New Orleans? And when he, he went was, on radio no, no, shows defending? He was, no, he was definitely yeah. not play acting. Not so the CIA exposing this, they're exposing the truth. They're exposing the reality of the guy who just shot the president. I mean, what what's sinister you, you, about su that? You're suggesting that this is part of the cover. Why up. is that a sinister thing that the CIA, knowing that the guy who just who the FBI and the Dallas police has said just shot the president was a committed Marxist who was uh, promoting Fidel Castro's cause in the United States? What's wrong about that? Why is that sinister? There's nothing wrong about it except for this, Mike. If it was the good guys from the CIA pointing out the terrible assassin. Nobody in the CIA takes credit for it. In fact, they make sure that the Warren Commission never learns that Oswald's antagonists in New Orleans were actually funded by the CIA, nor do they tell the Warren Commission that six top officers signed off on an inaccurate cable about Oswald before the assassination. You say, oh, they're hiding incompetence. Well, you know, one question about the Oswald file is, oh, if this guy's such a loser and nobody cares about him, there's nothing nothing in the Oswald file that anybody at the CIA ever thought that. In fact, Mike, you should look at the file and look at the routing slips on the cables about Oswald that come in before 1963. Uh, an ordinary State Department report about Oswald would be distributed and people would sign for it. It would be read in like six different CIA component offices. He was not some guy who nobody knew anything about. He was a guy who they were intensely interested in. And when he shows up in Mexico City and the and the question goes to Angleton's people, who is this guy? Nobody says he's a loser. Don't you know, don't pay any attention to him. They don't say that. They say, don't worry about this guy. He's maturing. OK, that's what six top CIA officers said about Oswald. Now, oh, let, let's just, you know, that's of no consequence. Wait a second. All of those people should have lost their jobs. Instead, they kept it all secret. And I think the reason that they kept it secret was because they were protecting sources and methods around Oswald because they were very interested in it and they were using him for intelligence purposes. One more point about, oh, nobody would ever touch Oswald. First of all, there's nothing in the CIA file saying this guy's of no interest. You know, forget him. Nobody ever said that inside the CIA. Second, 
you have to understand the way the CIA works. And a guy from the CIA, after he read my books, he came to me and he said, Jeff, let me tell you exactly who Lee Harvey Oswald was. And this was not based on any experience. This was just based on tradecraft. He said he was an agent of influence. And an agent of influence is a little different than an asset. An asset is somebody who you can count on to do something. An agent of influence is somebody who you have influence over and who can help you in certain situations. And he said that's the way Oswald is being treated before the assassination. He's being treated as an agent of influence, somebody who you can watch. You know a lot about him. You know people who are in touch with him. George DeMoran Schilt, his friend in, in Dallas, was a CIA asset. So, you know, the CIA had a lot of visibility into Oswald's life. Remember, they're reading his mail, okay? So this idea that, oh, it's ridiculous that the CIA couldn't have manipulated him. No, they had a ton of information about him. And he was the kind of person who they would manipulate. Just bring Phil president. in on this. Your thoughts on whether Oswald was an agent of influence who had some kind of operational, was part of some kind of operation being run by the CIA? I mean, I find it hard to believe. I, I think the CIA was intensely interested in him, as was the FBI. They thought he might be a, a Soviet, you know, he'd come back to the United States as a Soviet um, undercover agent of some sort. You know, he tried to defect to that country. He was apparently trying to defect to Cuba. He was obviously of interest to them, and, and that explains why they would follow him so closely in Mexico City while he's there. But I don't know. I just find it, again, knowing what I know about Oswald's personality or what I've learned over the years, I just find it hard to believe they ever would have placed any bet on this guy. So, look, a lot of what you guys are saying about what was withheld from the Warren Commission makes total sense, that both the FBI and the CIA were not eager to share the fact that they knew a lot about this guy before he shot the president. And that explains why they downplay and, or to use Jeff's language, lied to the Warren Commission about some of this. We also know that the CIA withheld information about their own plots to assassinate Castro using the mob and other methods, right? Perfectly understandable that the CIA would want to cover up its shocking role in trying to assassinate a foreign leader. But also there was another factor at work, which is that top people at the CIA and in the national security field did not want to encourage the idea that Castro or the Russians did it because that would escalate conflict in the middle of the Cold War. But think about um, that. All of that makes sense to me. Um, but I can't, but like Phil, I don't see Jeff how you get to some kind of operational relationship that they're covering up because I, we have no idea what it is. Nothing no, no, in the documents exactly, points Mike, to we it. We know exactly what it was. The, the DRE's case officer in 1963 yeah. was George Joannidis. In, right. his, in his job evaluation for what he did, he was the case officer for the Amsfell operation. And in, it, in his job evaluation, it says, what was, why did the CIA support the Amsfell operation? And they said, for intelligence collection, propaganda, and political action. Okay? He took over that job on August 1st, 1963. Oswald had no profile as a, as a Castro supporter or a, a supporter of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Except that he was a supporter of the Fair Play for, for Cuba Committee. Privately, please, please. But he had right, no public but... profile. Okay, fine. Okay. 
No, the propaganda operation is to create the legend around him. So 30 days later, the Amspell project has collected intelligence on Oswald, mm -hmm. engaged in political action with him, and generated propaganda about him. So you can say, oh, well, that just happened by accident. Lee no, Harvey it didn't Oswald happen by accident. They were taking advantage of the fact that this guy, a committed Marxist, was out there promoting Fidel Castro's cause in the United States when the CIA's mission is to get rid of Fidel Castro. Right. The people who were running the operation, Joannidi's superiors, knew about Oswald when that happened, right? Right. They were paying the Cubans to do these things, and they did them. You're saying that was just coincidence because Oswald wandered into the store of the favorite of the CIA's favorite Cubans in New Orleans. I yeah. say, no, that wasn't an accident. That was intentional. So you say there's no evidence of it. I say, look at the Joannidis personnel file. He paid them for intelligence collection, political action and propaganda. And within 30 days, they had delivered on Lee Harvey Oswald. So Joannidis and his superiors intended that to happen. Now, that's the first thing. Second thing, you know, we learned about Operation Northwoods. Nobody in the mainstream media wanted to cover Operation Northwoods. But if you look at Northwoods, the Northwoods concept, right. let's stage a violent incident in the United States and use trusted covert personnel, that's the Pentagon's phrase, to arrange for the blame to fall on Cuba. Well, on November 22nd, somebody staged a spectacular violent incident on an American target in Dallas and CIA assets immediately sought to blame the crime on Cuba. Now, you can say, oh, that was just a coincidence. Well, not before, a coincidence, before, of course. Before, they, they're taking before advantage before of we knew about before <laughs> yeah. we knew about Northwoods, you could say there's no evidence that it was anything but a coincidence. Now that we know about Northwoods, you say there was a template for something exactly like that that was circulating freely at the highest levels of the Pentagon was policy of the Pentagon. So you can't just dismiss it and say, oh, oh, it's ridiculous any more than you can say, you know, it, it was just coincidence that the, the Amspell project delivered on what the CIA was paying them to do. You know, it's like, to me, the more likely explanation is the CIA got what it paid for. Jeff, just a question. The Amspell files, because uh, I think I remember reading that you had sued to get a hold of them, have they all been released or, the, or the, is the CIA still has the, have those under wraps? You know, there's a lot of Amspell material that is in the JFK collection and a lot about George Joannides that is in the collection. But there's also a lot of material about him that was either never found or is known to exist, but is not in the collection. And that's where the story of the operation that I'm talking about is found. And we know that the reason these files are being withheld is they concern Joannidis' intelligence methods and his cover in 1963. That's where the story of this operation is hidden. Okay, so on that point, one of the more intriguing documents, and you guys could tell me if this had been out before, is a memorandum for the special group from Brigadier General Lansdale Operation Mongoose Progress. Now, Operation yeah. Mong Mongoose was the operation authorized by President John F. Kennedy yeah. after the failure of the Bay of Pigs 
to find ways to topple Castro's government. Right. Um, and uh, Lansdale, in this uh, memo, which is dated uh, May 1931, 1962, is going through all the things they're talking about, economic pressure, uh, uh, propaganda operations, radio operations, dropping balloons with leaflets over, the, uh, over Cuba. And he gets to other tasks. I note here that CIA does not feel it has the operational means to undertake task number 22. And then it's blanked out <laughs> the rest of that sentence. At this time, further, that task number 11 blanked out. This is in the newly released <laughs> documents that was supposed to give us everything right. would require operational facilities uh, that are not available. So what is task number 22 and task number 11? Phil, you want to take that? either of you? Phil, you have any I idea? Know. I don't know. And I'm going to go. I'm going to go get. I'm going to go look at that document. So, 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 Mike, Mike, yeah. just to be clear, that was a document released yesterday with those redactions. Still has Correct. those redactions. Yes, in them. yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, you know, it could be um, lacking the facilities. That might be a, um, you know, chem use of chemical or biological warfare, which the Cubans always alleged the Americans did, spraying crops with, you know, poisonous material which we never acknowledged or admitted and you know you got to think the other one is assassination since that was on their mind at the time it goes to show you that they they just don't want to you know come clean about this period well i'll tell you though that if the if it's hard to believe the archives officials would participate in an effort to hide that sort of material from the public I think it's much more likely that, that that there are references in there to people they may have been working with, the foreign governments they may have been working with, uh, that that's the sort of information that they more legitimately could argue they need to withhold from the public. You know, part of this is, though, that this material that's being this this material that's being withheld, if you assume there's something sinister going on, you have to believe that folks at the archives are participating in that sinister activity. And I, I, I find that a little hard to believe at this point. CIA operations are not disclosed in CIA records. So, you know, the records that I'm seeing about George Joannides, you know, if you, if you, when you and I read those records, they will not disclose anything sinister. They will disclose sources and methods. And, you know, the archives officials, I think, have done a good job, we now know, in pushing back against the agencies and saying, no, you have to release more. This doesn't, this withholding doesn't release the, meet the criteria of the law. So I'm not, you know, in saying that there's the CIA is concealing a covert operation here, I'm not indicting the archives. I think that it's a compartmentalized operation that's beyond the classification, uh, you know. Yeah, but I'm referring to this redaction that Mike, that, I did, that Mike mentioned. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to the Mexico City document for a moment, because um, there are multiple references to a woman who has always fascinated me named Sylvia Duran, who yeah. uh, worked at the Cuban consulate in Mexico. Yeah. Phil, I know you've uh, done a lot of work on Sylvia Duran and her relationship with Oswald. You even tracked her down in Mexico City, I believe, some years ago. Uh, tell us who she was and why she is a uh, person of interest in all this. Well, to my mind, she is the great mystery woman of, or at least one of the great mystery women of the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, she's a sort of this vivacious young Mexican woman, a committed socialist who's working in the Cuban consulate in Mexico City 
and deals face-to-face with Oswald, apparently helping him to try to get his visa that will allow him to defect to Cuba, much as he had once defected to Russia or tried to defect to Russia. And Sylvia Duran, I mean, there is a lot of reason to believe from previously declassified files that Oswald and Sylvia Duran had a brief affair while Oswald was in Mexico City. And that comes to us in part from some of the documents of Wynne Scott, the CIA station chief in Mexico City, who Jeff wrote a very fine biography of. And it's not just Wynne Scott. There's actually another CIA source who comes forward years after the assassination, who is a friend of Sylvia Durant's, who says that she told him that she had this relationship with Oswald as well. And there's been a lot of speculation over the years in these documents we've seen that Sylvia Duran was on somebody's was working for somebody other than the Cuban uh, government, the Cuban consulate. She might have been some sort of intelligence operative of the Mexicans, maybe even of the uh, the CIA. There's no proof of that whatsoever. But I think Sylvia Duran is one of those people who knows an awful lot. And I hope she tells us what she really knows before she goes. Jeff? The CIA, you know, they they pitched everybody who worked in the Cuban consulate to re- recruit them as spies. Literally, every they would approach everybody and constantly importune them with money, favors, uh, you know, whatever it was. And so Sylvia Duran was part of that. And one of the th- one of the things that is suggestive is, you know, David Phillips says, "Oh, the way to in a cable before the assassination says, oh, you know, the way to recruit Sylvia Duran is to get her in bed with an American." And so that only encouraged this notion, which was, which the story that was told by Elena Garrow a friend of Wynne Scott's wife and a well-known poet, that she had seen Oswald at a twist party and that Oswald had somehow associated with Sylvia Durant. A twist party in a in the Durant fa- or a Durant family home. Right. If only we had iPhone videos from that day. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the, the whole case would look very different. But yes. When, the, when but, the, you know, Bill is right. She is a, a, a fascinating character. When the Warren Commission goes to Mexico City in April 1964, David Slauson and William Coleman, they say, we'd like to talk to Sylvia Durant. So Scott goes to Luisa Echeverria, the future president, who's now a senior aide to the Mexican president. And Echeverria makes sure that the Americans see that the Warren Commission never gets to Sylvia Duran. And they play them off until Slauson and Coleman have to go home and they go home empty handed because they have not talked to like the person who was perhaps the most important person to talk to that. Yeah. So. Yeah. So. Sorry, Phil, uh, the, the Warren Commission didn't get to uh, Sylvia Duran, but but you did. <laughs> yeah. How, how, how did how you do it? Story? I did. How well, did you I'll do you, it? I'll and what did you, you say? Oh, I, we, we, uh, I had a terrific uh, stringer in Mexico City, and we spent weeks trying to track her down. And we finally, we, we camped ourselves outside her home and waited for her to return from a supermarket trip. And we found her with her you know, bags under her arms, and we stopped her, and we beseeched her for an interview. And outside the iron gates of her home, we had an hour-long interview. And she had, she was, uh, she was a wonderful interview. She's a, she's a remarkable person. And as I say, she sort of hinted that there was more to the story than she'd ever revealed, but uh, she certainly wasn't going to tell it to us. What did she tell you? She told us that, yes, she had dealt with Oswald. No, she had not had an affair with him. She said he was too short for her, um, <laughs> that he was too physically unattractive for her. But I will tell you, again, it, if, if you've got time for another podcast about Sylvia Duran, we should do it because she is fascinating. <laughs> and that Mexicans 
the Mexican National Archives and the American, uh, the CIA archives show that she was a very known figure on the intel in, on the espionage scene in Mexico City, and she had been tra- her complicated uh, family life and the uh, dating life was well known to both the CIA and to the Mexicans because she was being so closely watched. Um, she obviously has a role in this that we still don't understand. I think one thing to uh, important to understand about Sylvia Duran is if you read Win Scott's cables back to Washington, it's pretty clear that. And I wonder, Phil, if she, did she say anything about this? You know that she she was beaten or tortured by the Mexicans after the assassination to talk. I I think that the, that you can glean that oh. from from the cable traffic, and so it might be very difficult for her to talk about. You know what what exactly oh, sure. happened. Absolutely. And, I, you know, what, again, this is a terribly complicated, I think it's a fascinating, but terribly complicated story. But after the assassination, what does the United States Embassy do? It asks that Sylvia Durand be arrested and interrogated. And there is this, the, the staff members on the Warren Commission believe that she had been tortured, maybe tortured into silence. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, or they didn't know. Well, wait, did you say the CIA wanted her arrested and interrogated? Yes. The CIA, well, the CIA wanted her arrested, wanted her shut up. Doesn't that suggest that the CIA did not have a prior relationship with Sylvia Duran if they wanted her detained and questioned after the assassination? Because they wouldn't control it, right? Because somebody else would be talking to her. And if they did have a relationship with her, she could have revealed that. Well, but keep in mind, the CIA and the Mexican government, the office of the Mexican president, as we've said, had a very close relationship, close collaborative relationship. And it seems to me from the records that have been declassified before, both the CIA and the Mexican government were pretty eager to get Sylvia Duran off everybody's radar after the assassination. Hmm. Jeff, you were going to jump in here? Another baffling thing that happens on the night of November 23rd is when Win Scott says, we're going to have Sylvia Duran arrested. Tom Karamasinas, Assistant Deputy Director of Plans, a guy who had signed off on a cable about Oswald six weeks earlier, vouching for all of its contents, sends an emergency cable to Mexico City and says, call it off. We don't want American influence to be seen here. He says, because this this would compromise our ability, our freedom of maneuver on the whole question of Cuban responsibility. So in the hours after the assassination, Karamasinas, the guy who signed off on a cable about Oswald is saying, you know, the whole question of Cuban responsibility, can we can we blame this on Cuba? So they're thinking of that right away and they're thinking strategically about like, do you arrest Sylvia Duran? Well, how does that play into our plans to on the whole question of Cuban responsibility? You know, it's a very mysterious episode about like, did they want her arrested or not? Why did they why did they try and what, prevent it? Because she was an intelligence source of, you know, Highly important, as Phil said. Well, wait a second. A high place intelligence source for whom? She, she's in a very sensitive position. That's why they're pitching her to recruit right. her as a spy. Right. She had this prolific love life, which was, you know, of interest to the CIA. Could they manipulate her? So I'm not saying she was a CIA agent, like Phil says. That's never been that's never been proven. She was a leftist. Her brother Horacio Duran was a well-known leftist journalist in Mexico City. I don't doubt that part of her story, but you know. The point is, the CIA was highly interested in her. Let me ask both of you guys a more 
kind of cosmic question and maybe we can we can wind down on this but do, you, uh, do, do either of no, you we want to be in the weeds yeah. here. let's stay in the weeds well yeah. that's kind of the point of my question which is do either of you think that this issue is ever going to be settled or is it just the nature of this story that hundreds of years from now people like us will be debating all of the intricacies of of this assassination on the you know the the equivalent of like whatever pot whatever the the equivalent of a podcast <laughs> is you know three hundred years in from the twenty third century in the, yeah. exact, exactly I mean <laughs> seriously I mean do you think that we've just gone down a rabbit hole and we'll never get out of it? This is the ultimate rabbit hole, and you know Richard Russell, the Georgia senator who was on the Warren Commission, said after the commission re- released its report that, you know, people will still be debating these conspiracy theories uh, a thousand years from now. Uh, he could see where this was heading. And, you know, what we now know is that a tremendous amount of evidence was destroyed or hidden, certainly hidden from the Warren Commission. A lot of key witnesses have died or disappeared, which leads me to believe we'll never have a final answer to any of this unhappily. And I, I doubt the mysteries of the Kennedy assassination will be resolved by what still remains hidden at the National Archives. Jeff? I think that the story will will be clarified and the, the consensus will devolve around the notion that Kennedy was killed by enemies in his own government. And I think the release of Jackie and Robert Kennedy's interviews with William Manchester in 2067 will confirm that, that both Bobby and Jackie thought JFK had been killed by enemies in his own government. And they asked Lyndon Johnson to do something about it. Did you say 2067? Yeah. Was that so the ja- agreement? Yeah. Ja- Jackie, Jackie gave these We interviews. won't be alive then. <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> Speak for yourself, Isikoff. <laughs> you might well be. Yeah. You might well be. Uh, our kids will get the story. Yeah. But yeah, no, and I, I, I think the historical consensus, which is now very divided, I think will we'll gravitate towards that position. And, and just like, uh, Jeff, who were these enemies in the U.S. government who um, oh, back <laughs> down into the rabbit Kennedy? hole, Mike? No, I'm just <laughs> okay. No, no, like, who are question. they? <laughs> who, so the question is, who authorized that operation involving Oswald before the assassination? And I, when we get the documents, I think we'll see that it was either Bill Harvey or Jim Angleton. And I think that we will also see that they were working with the Pentagon. That's one of the sources and methods and cover that's being hidden in the Joe Anides files. So who authorized that operation? Probably not Helms, more likely uh, Angleton and Harvey. And so if somebody was, you know, up to no good with Oswald, it would be those guys. Well, I will point out to you, Jeff, that you are now in league with no less than Tucker Carlson, who was on uh, last night uh, on his show, uh, promoted the very same idea, talked about how the CIA was involved in the assassination of the president. I had a long talk with Tucker yesterday. and I declined- Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. And, and I declined to come on the show with uh, on the advice of colleagues. Um, I I was I was ready to do it. um, Yeah. And I might still do it. And I'll tell you the reason I might still do it is because, you know, we didn't really talk about this. But the big picture on this release, it's really a bad faith release. It's a shell game. It's a con game to to distract us from the issue at hand and from the law. And, you know, for the CIA to be acting in bad faith now with this law, you know, that's very suspicious. And that's why, you know, you say, oh, Jeff, there's nothing to what you're saying. You know, you're just imagining it. Well, 
If I'm wrong, the CIA can release the Joe Anides files tomorrow and prove it. They can give them to you and you can take them on the air and say, look, Morley, he's completely wet. There's nothing to what he said. They won't do that. And they won't do it because they can't do it because there was an operation there and they still can't disclose it. That's my opinion. Jeff, can I ask one question? Why, why, why would Bill Burns at the CIA buy into that? Though? Why would he, all these years later, want to be responsible for such a, a monstrous cover-up? I think what's going to happen in the next year is this is going to be brought to Bill Burns' attention, and he's going to want to get it off his desk. This is why I'm optimistic. Because, no, Bill Burns has no conceivable interest in this. The director of operations may be coming to him and saying, we could, you can't release this because of sources and methods. But when I think when Burns gets a sense of what's in that file and how they were hovering over Oswald and oper all the operational activities that emanated from him, I think Bill Burns is going to say, this is out, you know, this is ridiculous. We're not going to sit on this. I'm not going to take this. Wait a second. Bill Burns was has been in office for, what, a year and a half now, almost two years. And, and he, he knew nothing about what was in these docs that were released yesterday by the CIA, his agency? I think that he was probably briefed once in recent weeks. And I think that, you know, Judge Tunheim didn't point out the urgency of releasing the Joannides files until a letter to Biden last week. So it might not have even gotten to Burns until last week. Well, final thought. I just Hopefully want a final we'll thought. We'll also be alive us. by the end of uh, Bill Burns' term, and then we can have you guys back on and see if you're right. <laughs> uh, just final thought from Phil uh, on uh, Jeff's assertion that the CIA is acting in bad faith here. Well, again, I have, I have trouble with it because you would have to have bad faith 60 years later by lots of people who have would not want to stake their personal reputation or would not want to endanger it by hiding evidence of, of, of the worst cover up in the history of the United States. I don't think anybody, I mean, I think people are aware of the, of the Joe Anides file. The Joe Anides file doesn't tell you about a conspiracy to kill the president. It tells you about an operation involving Oswald. So I'm not saying CIA officials are sitting on top of demonic information about a conspiracy. They're hiding sources and methods around Oswald. That's all I'm saying. All right. Well, I suspect that um, the conversation <laughs> for the two of you and for us uh, will continue. But it is great to have both of you on because um, you guys know more about the subject than anybody else. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it.